Welcome to a semi-irregular space-filling episode of the Garbage Fire Podcast, Book Burning Edition Part 2. Your pod is hosted by Megan, who doesn't need short words, and Kelsey, who believes that all words matter. This week we are going to continue our discussion of Harper Lee's novel To Kill a Mockingbird, and we're going to talk about chapters 12 through 21, in case you're following along with us. So yes. there will be some spoilers, I guess. <laughs> Major spoilers. So many. There was we lots last time. We tried to really hold it back for... It's hard to talk about this book in chunks. It is. Because like we talked about last time, so much of the beginning doesn't make sense So you read the end. Yeah, it informs the end, and you have to... Not that it doesn't make sense, but it seems purposeless yes. until the end. So uh, last week we talked about um, the first 11 chapters of this novel and just sort of how it sets up this town almost as a character for us and like mm-hmm. how people interact within this town with each other. And There's layer on layer on layer on layer. <laughs> Um, and how the social structure that these that our characters exist in uh, informs a lot of what goes right and wrong. Yes. Inside this place. And and part two starts um, by really introducing to you to the heightening underlying conflict going on, which is of course Atticus representing this man Tom Robinson in. Um, this trial for yeah. how he was uh, accused of of raping him and beating a white woman. And I felt it was really interesting how Dill doesn't come this summer. Yeah, that's right. He's not there. He's on some... Did he get adopted? I don't know. I don't know what happens he, with Dill. He just kind of... he has a new father. Yeah, I don't think so. I think he's, I think he's always been with his mother. I think it's just I mother has so different too. men in her life. Okay. That's always sort of the impression, which is, I think, one of the reasons why Dill is so fond of Atticus. Because Atticus right. is definitely the father that he never had. Absolutely. And Atticus treats him like he's one of his own children, ultimately. Like, mm-hmm. he gets punished <laughs> the same way that his kids do and stuff, and I think that Dill, more than Scott and Jem, probably respects that. And needs it. And needs it. He's out of control. <laughs> he's the best. He is the best. He's little, but he's old. Um, but it's not just the trial that has things heating up. Atticus is uh, a representative in, in the state legislature as well. Uh, and he keeps getting called to... Um, is it in Birmingham? Yes. Should be, yeah. Birmingham. Um, because there's a lot of stuff happening in the state. There's yeah. bread strikes. There's well, then we're in the middle of the Depression, right? Depression, like, exactly. And and I found it interesting that Harper Lee mentions that, but then says these events were remote from the world of Jem and me. Well, and I think I think that that description that you get in the, the beginning, in the first part when Aunt Alexandra comes, or when they go to Finch's Landing for Christmas, like, it's quite far yeah. from anywhere else, right? And, like, Maycomb is far from... And... Purposes. Mobile and from Meridian, and it far from the steamboat. Yes, and it exists yeah. in its own little World, vacuum, yeah. and so so as much as what's happening in Birmingham when Al- when Atticus is gone, um, I don't think the kids really understand necessarily for, the gravity for the adults. Do you think that. that heightens what's to come? The hysteria, you mean? Mm-hmm. And I think probably a little bit. Because um, if you go back, and, and I think that Harper Lee, like, I don't like to talk about authorial intent because I don't know because I'm not the author, but yeah. I would pr- I would posit that Harper Lee put in that bit in part one about there's nothing to fear but fear itself um, for a reason. Mm-hmm. It, it gives us, you a time frame because you know when yeah. it was said, but I think that line also speaks Social to... context a little bit. Yeah, it contextualizes some of the, the conflicts that are taking place within this town um, and that if people had taken that advice then maybe things don't escalate the way that they had, mm-hmm. ultimately. 
Um, and so, as we talked about last week, uh, we're talking about this trial this, that Atticus is, is the defense attorney in, and the trial, the trial of Tom Robinson, um, who was accused of, of raping and beating Mayela Yule. Um, and this is where we really learn about the social structure in Maycomb and how, as much as people think they can break through, they can't. And it, it just doesn't... Yeah. It doesn't work. And one of the things that's really interesting um, that happens four times, we just looked this up just before we started recording, four times throughout the book, none in the second part, which is really interesting because I think it should, it should be it in the should second be part. should be in the second part, absolutely. Um, in the first part, Atticus uh, and Jem both say to Scout that it's not time to worry yet, that there's, um, you know, it's not a big deal, don't worry. It's the first time Jem says it to her is when he has to go back and get his pants um, after they get torn off on the fence at the Radley place. And then Atticus says it to her uh, after she's been fighting at school. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just tells her it's not time to worry yet. And then he goes on and gives her a little bit of, of a rundown. Says, you know, this summer you're going to hear some things and people are going to say some things and I need you to keep your head and, and whatever. And she's like, well, no one at school has to keep their heads about anything, so why should I? Yeah. And he just reminds her of the family that she's part of and the position they have in the community and that it's her responsibility to be above all of it. Um, Which is so... Oh. So hard. Telling that to, what is she, six then? Seven. Seven? Mm-hmm. Telling that to a seven-year-old? Yeah. Ugh. But if you're going to tell it to a seven-year-old, she's probably the most capable seven-year-old to tell that to. Potentially, right? yeah. Um, and so, so Atticus tells her, you know, it's not time to worry yet. And we were just talking before we hit record, like, when is it time to worry? Because it, I contend her a number of so times many it's times time to, to worry. worry. Um, but Atticus, is he's ultimately protecting his children, I think, from, mm-hmm. from the horrors that are, are to come. And as much as, Kelsey, you didn't like what he did with Mrs. DeBose, I'm not sure I agree with this parenting decision of his. I feel like I feel like he should have probably said something to them about the trial, the trial and just explained a so little bit understand. before that they, just so that they knew and so that they knew when people said these things to them, like, what where it's coming from. Rather than being called a blank lover. Yes. Say, people might say these things and this yeah. is why. Yeah. Rather than after the fact. Or to. if you're not sure that you need to tell them, but like once you find out, then like okay, this is the situation, yeah. and this is, and I do need you to keep your head, yeah, because this is going to be a very busy time, and I need to know that you're safe, and all those kind of things. Because he doesn't do it, I don't think, because he doesn't care for his children. I just think that he's not sure how to navigate all of these, yeah, competing responsibilities that he has. Because mm-hmm. um, he has a responsibility to his client. He does. Who is innocent? Mm-hmm. And I feel that the. It's really interesting for when discussing all the complexities of all those different layers to start out part two by having Jem and Scout accompany Calpurnia to the Black Church. Yes, which is just fascinating. It's my favorite chapter in the whole book. Calpurnia is one of the few people in the Black community in Maycomb who can read. Yes. Um, and part of that, I think, is simply because she works for the Finches. For the Finches. Yes. I think that's definitely that's part of it. That's what she says, yeah. Um, and what that means is that when they go to church, it's a very different experience from going to their own church in town. Mm-hmm. Because you don't have to read the hymn books. Because no one can Because no one can read. And so they... It's repetition. They sing, yeah, through repetition, through what they call whining. And, and it's... You know, it's a call and response sort of thing, and it's a much more. It feels like anyway, just the description of it, a much more participatory mm-hmm. um, church experience for these kids. And Scout seems quite enamored with it. Yes, in a good way. Like in she's a good she's, way. she's very she's very. I don't want to say like she's not bemused by it, but she's very much like she's quite engaged, interested in what's going on. And to me, what was really powerful is Calpurnia's bringing the children, and this woman Lula. 
challenges them as to why you bring these white children to our place, mm -hmm. which I think is, you know, apt for them to have Absolutely. a place that is of their own. And she says, no, they're my guests. They're my guests. I'm bringing them here. They want to be here. They, you know, they have every right to be. The Lord is the Lord, etc. But then Reverend Sykes acknowledges Jem and Scout by saying, Mr. and Miss Finch, you all know their father. To, and, and he acknowledges them, but he also does that, I think, to make a point to the rest of the congregation that, like, mm -hmm. it's not just two white children that are here. Like, the, these two white children... Their father is trying to do something for us. for one of our yes. one of ours, and we need to we need to be grateful mm -hmm. and, and and cognizant of that. And but they have this wonderful experience at church. Like it's and a wonderful experience. Wonderful. And and Scout in, in particular is really blown away by the sense of community and support in helping out Tom Robinson's wife. Yeah. Because the collection goes around, and not enough money is collected. To yeah. help out Helen for the week. And so they close the doors. And they don't let anyone out until there's and enough no money in that. no one can leave yeah. until there's enough money. And and so, and, and Jem and Scout feel compelled to put their own money in. They do. Um, even though... We can put ours in, give me your dime. Yeah, and, and I mean, it's not a lot of money, obviously, that they're contributing, because no. nobody has very much. But I mean, they feel compelled to, to put their money in as well. Mm -hmm. um, because as much as they're not part of the community... On a, like a superficial level, they've been welcomed into the community, yes. and then they get welcomed into that community again when the trial happens, yes. um, and they watch with, the trial yeah. up in the balcony with the reverend, and and he's someone moves to give them seats, all four of them, which including is including Dill, which is amazing, <laughs> which is amazing um, to be looked at with that kind of reverence, mm -hmm. right? Of course, the reverend be a very respected person in that community but for to, for the reverend to say that these white children mm -hmm. are welcome um as part of that community so it was really interesting when i taught this book not this year but i've taught it before um a whole bunch of my kids thought that the finches were black whoa yeah really it's fascinating and some of them also thought scout was a boy and i was like oh god read closer um she says i don't want to be a girl well maybe she doesn't maybe uh, anyway whatever it doesn't matter um yeah it she's was, referred to as she uh, <laughs> no one said they read closely okay Jeez. um but uh yeah i have i've had a number of kids every time i've taught this book think that the finches are a black family why do you think that is i'm not sure and i don't know if it's because i don't know if they think it right off the hop either i think they start to think it later on that, like, why would a white lawyer take on the case? Like, do you know what I mean? I think that's kind of the mm -hmm. idea that they get. And also, to be fair, it never gets mentioned. Whether or not they are? No. No. I mean, the assumption, obviously, the assumption and they are, there. but but it never actually explicitly gets mentioned because it doesn't need to be mentioned because I think the implicit understanding is this that is they how are. The they lived in town. The time yes, they lived in town. <laughs> and they had a black woman working for them. And he was a lawyer. Yes. And they have a family history going back so many generations yeah. of learning. And they were slave people. owners. And they talk and about they being slave, slave owners. owners. So, like, yeah. there's a whole bunch of context clues, clues. in there. Yeah. But I just, it's really interesting that some of the kids don't pick up on those clues and they think that, that they're black. Well, that could be because, like, depending on who teaches them grade 10 social. Yeah, maybe. Their knowledge of slavery and the slave trade and. You know, triangular system may not be as in depth as others. But it's always really interesting. And then when we get to the part 
um, when they go to church with Calpurnia, that's when I always find out if there's kids who think that they're black because they don't understand why it makes like such a big deal that these kids are there. I'm like, because you got these little white kids in this church and they're the mm-hmm. only two white people around. Yeah. And then you hear this wonderful lesson that they learned from Calpurnia. And Jem doesn't ask, but Scout does. And Scout asks why Calpurnia talks different when she's at church than yeah. she does when she's in town. And Calpurnia is probably more than anyone else in the novel the most adept at navigating different social structures. Because yes. she has to be. Yes. Um, because it's ingrained in her. she is responsible for raising these children. Mm-hmm. And she has been for however long. And she has been the steadiest like female influence in their lives since their mother passed away. And Atticus readily admits that to Aunt Alexandra numerous times. Yes, and he's he he says to he's Aunt Alexandra that that Cal- he couldn't do it without her mm-hmm. ultimately, and even when Aunt Alexandra comes to stay, like they can't do it without Calpurnia. No, and she's part of the family ultimately. Um, but it's a really an interesting um, question that Scott has in this observation that she makes is that the way that Calpurnia speaks, and Calpurnia just says that like she can't speak the way she does in town when she's at church mm-hmm. and with her people because they would think that she's putting on airs. Yeah. And thinks that she's above everyone else. And she already has that a little bit because she can read. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is, is ultimately irrelevant. But she's one of a very, very small minority in the community that can read. Mm-hmm. And because of that, if she also were to take that, that book learning that she has and then come back into her community and speak the way she does when she's in town during the week, I think it would change. She would be an outsider. She would be yeah. absolutely an outsider. And it's very, very critical for what happens with this trial and how this all plays out, that she is an insider. Mm-hmm. It's, she needs it to is crucial that well. she's an insider. Yeah. Because she's going to be able to help Atticus, she's going to be able to help the children, and she's going to be able to help the Tom's family perhaps, yeah. um, by being yes. part of both worlds. And also what happens in that chapter is... Calpurnia is the one that explains what Tom, quote-unquote, did. Yes. And Scout has to ask. Um, this is how she says it, and I love how she says it. Well, if everybody in makeup knows what kind of folks the Ewells are, they'd be glad to hire Helen, and then an ellipses. What's rape, Cal? Just And you right can imagine it would just be like, as she would ask Atticus, what's a compromise? Mm-hmm. You know? Atticus, what's an entailment? Yes. Like, just a very... Just an open-ended question. Yeah, and, and, and the, the, the beautiful thing about that is Cal doesn't shy away from it. Which, you know, is, is perhaps problematic a little bit. I think, I think she doesn't... I think maybe this is the thought I've, always, okay. I've often had. Had it been one of her own children, she might have shied away from it. But I think because it's not her child. Right. Like, there still is that disconnect between... between like, they're not her kids. Mm-hmm. And I think because Scout isn't her kid, she can't... She doesn't feel like she can make the decision to withhold that information. Because I think... If Scout were to ask Atticus, what's rape? Atticus would tell her the answer. Yeah. Maybe if, she's not ready for the answer. And I think she might not be ready for the answer, but Atticus would tell her but the answer. But he does eventually. And I think and I think that Calpurnia does the same thing for that reason. Right? Just to like that she's she's part of this this family unit, but she's not quite part of the family unit and she doesn't have the authority to make that decision for what information Scout can and can't have. Yeah. Which is fair. Um I don't know if I, I I don't know if I would do the same thing, but, you know, mm-hmm. I, um... And when we do get that explanation from Anicus, he says, Rape is a carnal knowledge of a female by force and without consent. 
And Scout says, well, if that's all it is, why did Cumberta dry me up when I asked her what it was? Yeah. And he finds out <laughs> that they went to church and he says, what's that again? And he puts down the paper, again, please. But she dressed him this way. And it digs like four dimes for him to be like, a what? <laughs> Cumberta just took you to church? Um, which is super yeah. interesting. And it ends with Scout, of course, being angry and yelling at her aunt for just being concerned about them. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's it's very interesting. Well, and I mean, when, when Calpurnia says that she's going to take them to church, mm-hmm. um, Scout gets bathed violently. Oh, um, yes. And it, again, Harper Lee, like, it, it harkens back to some of that, like, Dickensian whatever, because I still think, we've talked about this before, about In Great Expectations on, like, page 10, when Mrs. Joe is, like, buttering this bread, and it's just violent yeah. with, like, she, like, slices the butter and like it's because it's so hard and she like goes into this bread like it's just mm-hmm. it's a fascinating image and so i'm imagining this like little seven-year-old kid just Being getting scrubbed. just and she's just bright red when yeah. it's all done right because her skin is just raw which is so interesting that um calpurnia wants the kids to be cleaner for her community mm-hmm. than they are for when the kids go to their own church well and i think part of it is because they already fit into their own community right and they're it, it's not strange to see them in their own church because that's their own church, and I think that's maybe part of it. I guess so, but do you think that... <laughs> Is there also maybe a fear of reprisal for her that she's not looking after her kids? Like... Her own kids. Well, Gem and Scout, but you know what I mean? Like, she's not looking after them as well as she should be because here they are, you know, mud on their faces and... Right. Right, like, just that. Hmm. Or knowing that what's-her-face, Eula May, is that who she is? Lula. Lula, that she doesn't, she doesn't want, she, and maybe Calpurnia is very cognizant of the fact that Lula's not going to want them there. So sh- they have to be perfect, essentially? Yes. Yeah. To gain acceptance? Yeah. Which is such a shift. Yes. Because going the other way, that's exactly what it would be like. Of, of course. Yeah. Have to be absolutely perfect citizens to be considered even close to yeah. equal or accepted. Yeah. Yeah, it's a super interesting beginning to the chapter. Um, and so to to get, kind of get into that, and it's interesting that they go to the this church, um, and then then we get into the trial afterwards. Mm-hmm. And so they've had this exposure to this community, and I think that's when Scout kind of realizes that people are just people, because she has that line earlier where she says that there's just one kind of folks, just folks. Yeah. And she's not really willing to accept there are differences between people. Um, but she's, I think this is when she realizes that, you know, like, everyone goes to church. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter where they go to church. They go to church and they believe in God and they, you know. They do the same types of things. They do the same it types of things. It looks but different, but there's still a collection plate. There's still all of those things. Yeah. And I think that's when she really kind of starts to realize that, like, people are just people. And I think it's a very galvanizing thing for Jem as well to mm-hmm. be part of that. Because in this situation... Um, he's like, he's one of he's one of the most powerful people in this entire situation, because he's a white male. Who Jim? Yeah, at this church, mm-hmm. like, and he's he's called Mister. He's called Mister, you know, and and that's what for whatever reason that's a sign of respect, I guess. And I I kind of agree with you. It's a little bit strange, but like, he is by all accounts like if something were to happen, let's say while they're out at this church, and and the police have to come. Mm-hmm. He's going to be listened to before pretty much anyone, anyone else, else there. Yeah, 
and he's 12 years old. Yeah. But I think that that moment for him is very galvanizing as well, because he sees how, at the end of it all, him and his sister have been kind of welcomed into this fold, and now they can be part of this. And so when it comes to the trial, and they're sitting upstairs, and whatever. And I think that's why Jem is so troubled by the end, because he Mm -hmm. couldn't do anything. No, even though he knew. He knew what was right. And what was wrong. Yeah. And he, there was nothing he could do about it. And it couldn't happen. So part of the wonderful additions to the conflict and, and understanding of Scout as someone who's wise and unwise, this <laughs> dichotomy that's in her, is when Tom is moved from, where was it before? He's moving into the Maycomb jail. Yeah, in from like the county jail the or whatever. From the county jail, wherever it was. Um, and there's been some rumblings that other people in town are, are assuming going to lynch Tom. Mm-hmm. Right? They're going to break in before his trial happens. Some sort of harm is going to come to him. Yeah. And it, the, I mean, I've often thought that they're going to try and kill him. Yes. That's what I thought too. Because you don't have four cars show up full of men no. for nothing, right? Yeah. So Atticus stays outside his jail cell yeah. outside the. Um, is it the police station? Or I think the it's the police courthouse? station. I th- it might know. Maybe it's the basement of the courthouse. Maybe, perhaps. Um, but he's outside. He brought his lamp and he's reading. Of course, as he course, always. Of course, is. he is. And Jem's afraid. Jem knows something's going to happen, so yeah. he needs to go see what's happening. And yeah. they, of course, Dill is back. Um, all yeah, Dill and Dill shows up. Dill shows up. And they in Scout's bed. And Scout's bed is just there, or under Andy's. Yeah, <laughs> under and she, bed, she thinks yeah. there's a snake, and then realizes that it's still. Which maybe is a kind of a little bit true. I don't know. Um, but then he, they have this wonderful little um, when he does when Dill does show up. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, did I skip it? Scout says to him when they're like going to sleep. She says, "Why do you reckon Boo Radley's never run off?" And then Dill turns to her and says, "Maybe he's never had anywhere to run off to." Yeah. Um, whereas Dill at least has a place to go. Because in a lot of ways, I think Dill and Boo Radley are very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, they're kind of like prize in their communities, it feels like, and that kind of thing. But like I think they're very similar, and I think Dill really identifies with with Boo Radley in that. And, and Boo, but Boo Radley doesn't get mentioned really in this part of the book. No. It's all in that first part. Mm-hmm. And then he's just kind of little tiny bits, tiny bits as we go man. through. Yeah. Which are important, mm-hmm. as we'll see when we get into part three. But it's really interesting that like all of a sudden... It's mentioned. It's again. mentioned again. Yeah. It's brought up. Yeah. So we have Gemma and Scout and Dill rushing, and they see Atticus there, and Scout always wants to run to him. She wants to be near to him, and Jem stops her. He says, mm-hmm. don't go to him. He might not like it. He's all right. Let's go home. I just wanted to see where he was. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's a beautiful connection as to understanding Jem's connection to his father. Not needing to know more or to be near him, mm-hmm. but just to know that he's okay. Um, and then they find that the Gem and Scout are, are observing this, and they find out that these men are here for, like, ultimately nefarious purposes. Yes. And they've called off the sheriff and his men. Um, Somewhere else. On a snipe hunt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Atticus is unflappable. He's probably terrified, but he's unflappable out in public. And I think part of that is because Tom's in that cell, and... If he's Tom does happen, does happen yeah. to be awake or whatever, he's going to hear this. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And uh, so Atticus says, you know, I thought about this, you know, but that changes things, doesn't it? When he finds out that, that the sheriff and his men aren't going to be around. And then someone says, it does. And then someone else says, do you really think so? Or and Atticus says, rather, do you really think so? And Scout, as the narrator says, this was the second time I heard Atticus ask that question in two days. And it meant somebody's man would get jumped. And she says, this was too good to miss. So there's still that part of her where she's like waiting for yeah. a fight. Um, and the, but do you really think so? That's a subtle mm-hmm. superiority of Atticus, right? He's questioning their base beliefs right then. Yeah. And Scouts, she's heard this question and she knows kind of what's coming. And so she, and then she runs, she breaks free of Jim and Jim and she runs mm-hmm. towards Atticus. Um, she bursts into the circle of light, which I think is really cool because Atticus has this light rigged up outside the, mm-hmm. and so then there's Scout and like, I mean, when you think about like being lit up from above or whatever, like she's this Brilliant angel joke, ultimately, yeah. right? Um, the savior. And she is. Like she, <laughs> she single-handedly stops this mob from doing what they're going to do, from harming her father or from harming Tom, Tom Robinson. And she's like, this is where we, we find Mr. Cunningham and Scout just like, Talks legal hey, talk. Mr. Yeah, and talks about you know how her, his son Walter ate you know ate lunch at their house one time and he's in my class. He's a real and, nice boy. And it's just so fascinating because this is the second time in a very short span of time where Scout has made a room of adults just stop what they're doing and look at her and be utterly stupefied. Yeah, because she, and she doesn't know that, that what she's doing is the thing she shouldn't be doing because no one's ever told her that she shouldn't. And she even asked Atticus, "What's the matter?" Yeah. And she, our narrator says, Atticus said nothing. I looked around and up at Mr. Cunningham, whose face was equally impassive. Then he did a peculiar thing. He squatted down and took me by both shoulders. Mm-hmm. He says, I'll tell him, his son, Walter, you said, hey, little lady. And then they clear out. Yeah, and they go away, and that's the end of it. And that's a really interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not they ever believe that, um, you know, that Tom Robinson's innocent, or it doesn't matter. But uh, it's just... It's really interesting that she does that because she in the like two chapters before when she's telling Atticus about the time they went to church with Capernaum, he's like, "Excuse me, what?" Mm-hmm. And and Alexandra's like knitting, and then slowly Stop. she just like puts it down. <laughs> and Scott has made this room of adults. It's just the two of them, but still, they're just staring at her like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah. And this is the same thing. She and she's talking about things that she knows nothing about, um, about entailments and whatever. And Atticus and and, and maybe to his credit, this is like the way that he talks to his kids yeah. saved his life, perhaps. Oh, absolutely. Because it gave Scout a, a, a framework from which to speak to these other adults. And his explanation of that is, this proves something. That a gang of wild animals can be stop, stopped simply because they're still human. And he even says, maybe we need a police force of children. You children last night made Walter Cunningham stand in my shoes for a minute. And that was enough. And that's the thing that Atticus, I think, is, is very um, concerned with. It's people standing and walking around in other people's shoes. Oh, yeah. Um, Especially at the end. And he, but he wants to be very empathetic. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wants his kids to be empathetic. He wants them to recognize a lot of things. He wants them to recognize that they have privilege. Yeah. And that's why they go to Mrs. Dubose's, like... Yeah. It I makes sense, that. but it sucks. It's brutal. <laughs> um, and, and he tries really hard to instill in his children this belief that they're not better than anybody else. Mm-hmm even though they're both probably smarter than most of their kids and a whole bunch of things, but he tries to remind them that mm-hmm. they don't have a lot and they don't have anything to brag about, no. ultimately. Um, and I think that's a very interesting thing that he does with them. 
because it teaches them kind of how to navigate this uh, this very adult world that they live in. Because mm-hmm. again, outside of school, the only kid we ever see other than them is Dill. Is Dill, yeah. And Dill, even though he's present, is much less of a presence in this section. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's moments where he's crying uncontrollably in the courthouse, and so they have to leave because he just won't shut up because he's so disturbed by what's happening mm-hmm. and what's being said, of course. But other than that doesn't really play a huge role in what's happening and then also doesn't play a huge role in the resolution with with boo either which is really interesting since he's the one who started he's the one who started it but it was for scout and and that's the whole and i love it and it's one of my favorite things that i've ever read in my entire life but we'll talk about that afterwards um (laughs) because i don't want to spoil it um one after after the the kids leave the courthouse with Atticus, like because he doesn't have to, um, he doesn't have to stay anymore because he knows like Walter Cunningham, whatever has been, has transpired, Walter it's Cunningham not will not allow those men to come back. Yeah. Um, and whether that means that Walter Cunningham is going to, uh, uh, Walter Cunningham is going to stand guard so they don't come back, you know. And I also think it's interesting there at the end of chapter fifteen where. Uh, we find out that Mr. Underwood has been there the whole time in the newspaper office with his double-barreled shotgun, just, just keeping waiting. an eye on things, which is great. Because you know that there are people in this town. Miss Maudie is one of those people, and Mr. Underwood is obviously one of those people, mm-hmm. and Dolphus Raymond, who we meet a little bit later, is one of those people. Like, they know the truth of things. Yeah. And I think a lot of people know the truth of things, but they're not willing to admit the truth of things. Whereas no, I think... I, I've, but, like, Miss Maudie is, and Mr. Raymond is, and Mr. Underwood clearly is. And it takes an exceptional person, because for them, for other people to admit that, you know, these are injustices, that's to contradict everything that their social structure provides for them and to them, right? So to do that takes an exceptional person, and I don't think, especially in the 30s, this is something that people are willing to openly do. For sure. And so at the end of this chapter, what I just really love, and you mentioned, like, Dill doesn't say much, and he does ask Atticus after um, he shuts the light off above the door. Atticus picks up his chair and Dill says, can I carry it for you, Mr. Finch? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because everybody else calls him Atticus. Yeah. And Dill calls him Mr. Mr. Finch. Finch. Um, and then, and then, even though it's just a term of endearment, Atticus says, why, thank you, son. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that's, that's an acceptance of Dill into that fold. And then you see, like, um, some affection between Jem and Atticus as well because Scout's walking behind with Dill because mm-hmm. he's got this chair that he's carrying and Atticus reaches over and kind of, like, ruffles Jem's hair yeah, just to, like... Yeah. There, and there's that connection that he doesn't always do. No. Right? And so there's there's that really he's nice moment. He's not super touchy-feely. No. No. He's, courteous detachment is, is a very yes. good description for it. Yes. And, and he does it very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, I think that was a very good thing that Scout saw. To see that Atticus does have that capability. Yeah. You know, even though Jem's being kind of a fart lately. Yeah. yeah. Um... And then it jumps right into the trial. We we do meet Mr. Dolphus Raymond, and we get discussion of mixed children. Yeah. And there's... And s- and not just mixed children, but also, like, people's perspectives on things. Because Dolphus yeah. Raymond has this... Everyone thinks he's a drunk. Uh, and then they find out that he just drinks Coca-Cola. He puts his Coke bottle in, in a paper bag, and everyone yeah. thinks that he's a drunk. And he does it for everyone else's benefit. Yeah. For them, because no one else can understand why he would 
you know why he would have have children with someone who wasn't of his own yeah race and yeah. so he says this is the only way that they'll understand my choices and so it, it allows and it people makes it easier for them yeah. which is absolutely infuriating to me it is and it's not he makes it easier for them but it also opens him up to fewer questions yes right true. and so it makes it easier for him as well i think just so then he doesn't have to be like oh i just want to do it this way you know he, he, it just they just accept that he's doing things whatever way and mm-hmm. he and he also clearly doesn't care what people think of him no which is kind of refreshing because so is. many people in the town do. Yes, right? that status and, you is know, very putting important. on airs is very much a thing. Yeah, but then we get this discussion of black children, and I think it's Jem who says um, they don't belong anywhere because they're not white, they're not black, and so they also have a sense of disconnection from mm-hmm. the community. But then, considering your students didn't know, Scout says, "How can you tell?" And Jem just says, "You just have to know." Who they are and where they come from and she says but how do you know we ain't negroes and Jem replies uncle jack says we don't really know we could have come out of ethiopia a long time ago but probably not except probably and now except we know <laughs> now we know but yes yeah. and, and that's a really interesting thing um, but that you really have to read close i think to catch yeah, that to catch that that thing um yeah i don't know that's a, that's a very interesting a very interesting point and so so as this child goes on they, they start to kind of realize, I guess, the way of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, they're sitting up in, in the balcony with... Because um, there's no seats downstairs, and that's where all the white people get to sit, is downstairs, and all the black people have to sit upstairs. Yes. Um, and it's called the colored balcony. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get to go and sit, and it... So, Reverend, it says here, Reverend Sykes came puffing behind us and steered us gently through the black people in the balcony. Four Negroes rose and gave us their front row seats. So for the reverend and these three children, like especially Dill, that's such a weird one because he's like not part of it. No, you know. Um, but I, I, whether that's an acknowledgement of what their father's doing, you know, in here mm-hmm. be part of this, or it's just you know the reverend is like move whatever it is, it doesn't matter. They get to have this front row seat, but it's detached, right? They're not yeah. down they're not with down their well. own people. They're up, and they're mm-hmm. they're able to kind of see how things work and I think that works better especially for Jem's interest in the trial it works better that they're up Mm -hmm. rather than down on the main floor and the continued discussion of of race and class continues because there's a lot of breakdown by the older scout here on on what makes the Ewells different Mm -hmm. from everyone else and there's talk about how every community Mm -hmm. has a family like the Ewells where they do their things but the community Mm -hmm. allows it to happen but what I found super interesting about that is when she says all the little man on the witness stand had that made him any better than his nearest neighbors meaning the black people who mm-hmm. live next door to him was that if scrubbed with lye scope in very hot water his skin was white and so she knows and she knows that's the only reason yeah. that this terrible man is considered for some reason superior to Tom Robinson. Yeah. And why his word is being held and Mayella's yeah. word is being held. So Literally much because yeah. he's white. And it's just put out there. She says that's yeah. how it is. Yeah. And, and it's interesting too because like we'll, like you and I, we will joke sometimes about like, oh, we're just trash people and you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but like the Yules are trash. They're, and what's super interesting is Like they live by that, the dump and like they are yeah. just trashy people. And Atticus does his best to not... 
to not criticize people for, mm-hmm. for who they are and what they've been given in life. Mm-hmm. But he specifically calls certain people trash. Yep. And he calls the Ewells trash because they use the N-word in that way. Yeah. And because they act in these certain ways. Yeah. And for him, those are contrary to what it means to be a human. Yeah, and so you have someone like the Cunningham family, where you have Mr. Cunningham, and, and he's mm-hmm. too proud to accept a handout from anybody. But, but he's also a reasonable yeah. person, as mm-hmm. we found out, whereas Bob Yule is not. Is not, no. And, like, the only, the only thing about Bob Yule, and it, it makes me chuckle every time I read it because it's just so fitting, is that his name is Robert E. Lee Yule. Yeah. And of course it is. Of course like, it of, is. Like, I don't know who else... Unless it was, like, Jefferson Davis. Like, like, do you know what I mean? Like, president of the Republic. Like, I just... Of the Confederacy. Like, I don't know what other name you could give him. That, that, f- could, that, would, yeah. that would be so fitting. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is super funny, because when Dill first maybe meets... Maybe, like, Andrew Jackson. Maybe. When, <laughs> when Dill first meets Jem, they have that discussion of names. Yes. And Jem says, I'm big enough for my name. Yeah, well, because Dill is not, because his name is Charles Baker Harris, and he's just, like, a tiny little... But Robert Ewell is absolutely is big enough for his name. He, well, he is and he isn't, though. Like, I mean, he is in a way, because he's an Why adult. Why is he not? But he's also, he also doesn't have the, I mean, you say what you want about, you know, the Confederacy and whatever, but, like, he could never, ever lead a like group of anybody. Like, conviction, okay. Right? I guess like, so right. he doesn't have that. But just the fact that his name is Robert E. Lee. Yes. Is just, like... It's perfect. It's per- it is. There's yeah. no. There's nothing else you could name him that would be more perfect than Robert E. Lee. No. Um, and I find really interesting too, as as Atticus is uh, interrogating or uh, examining um, both Bob and Mayla Yule, mm-hmm. he treats them as much as he thinks that they are trash people. And I don't think he thinks Mayla is trash. I think he thinks Bob Yule is trash. Because um, I but think he's very controlled. He he is very controlled, but I think but he I think he pities Mayla just because of the situation that she's found herself in, um, mm-hmm. and it's really through no fault of her own. But the way that he in, that he examines them when they're up on the witness stand, like he treats them with the utmost respect, and, and that infuriates her. Oh, it does. She gets so angry because she thinks she's being made fun of mm-hmm. because he's calling her Miss Mayella. But like, it, she wouldn't know any better, I don't think, because like in polite society, of which. Atticus is part. Yeah, yeah. Um, you call people Miss and Mrs. Mm-hmm. and Mr. because that's the title that they've earned. Yeah. Um, because it's a sign of respect. And that's why his children call everybody Miss Maudie or Miss Stephanie or Miss Rachel or Mrs. DuBose. And everybody has that name. Like even Nathan Radley, like they call him Mr. Radley. The only one they don't, they don't call Boo Radley. They just call him Boo. Mm-hmm. They don't call him a Mr. Because I think. They don't think of him that way. I think they think of him as a child. I think they in, in so think many ways, yeah. right? Because no one really knows anything about him. But yeah. when when is up on the stand and she has that outburst and she's not going to answer a question because he's disrespecting her, and the yeah. judge has to be very careful and say, no, no, he's Atticus. He's courteous to everyone. Yeah, yeah, he's courteous to everyone. Um, and it's just his way. And he's not mocking you. No. Nope. And then she kind of calms down a little bit. Um. Do you feel sympathetic for Maya? I feel a little bit bad for her, yes. And the reason that I feel bad for her is because of what Tom Robinson says this is in his testimony. But I do not feel bad for her because of the circumstance she's found herself in. In this situation. The simple yes. fact that she's testifying. It removes that. Yes. Because we all know that she shouldn't be. We know that she shouldn't be. We know that that shouldn't be a thing. Um, I do feel sorry for her, though. Because there's, what, like seven kids? 
number ranges between six and nine. Yeah, so... She doesn't have friends. She even says... She frowns. Yeah. And looks at Atticus and repeats the word friends. Yeah. As if she's never heard it before. Yeah. Which is an interesting thing, too, because she's isolated out there. And so I wonder if the interaction... Like, there's no denying that there was an interaction between her and Tom Robinson. Like, he admits that she asked him for some help. Yes. And he... Numerous times. Felt bad for her. Yes. Because she's got all these snot-nosed kids running around and a drunk father and who no beats yeah. them, all of them, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Tom Robinson, generally speaking, is a fairly um, compassionate person. And he so is. he felt like he should help. And I mean, it's important to note, for those of you that haven't maybe got this far, you just don't want to read the book, Tom Robinson only has one arm. Mm-hmm. He's got like a stump. On his left arm, Mm because he lost it in a machining accident. And that becomes a very important thing a little bit later. But, I mean, he's going to go in and help her bust up this old wardrobe, probably for firewood, is kind of the understanding that I have of it. Because she has no one else to help. No. And so they do have this interaction, and then she accuses him of rape and of beating her. But what I think happened, and I think this is sort of the implication, is that her father came home saw Tom Robinson in his house. Yeah. Or leaving, right? Maybe just leaving the house. Mm-hmm. And then he asked Mayla what happened or why he was there. Yeah. And then she told him and then he beat her and potentially raped her. Yes. That's what I, that's kind of always been my, my reading of it. I agree. Um, and I so agree. for those things, I do feel sorry for her mm-hmm. because that's a situation in which no one should ever find themselves. But at the same time, she had the ability to at least tell the truth and she chose not to. Well, I wonder because if if she's been living with her father and he's clearly an abusive, psychotic man, mm-hmm. if for her, lying was the way to escape punishment, maybe in this situation she just chose the wrong lie. Yeah, maybe. That's, right? that's a fair point. Because she assumed... That whatever punishment would be coming to her would be going to Tom instead. Yes. But what she said absolutely enraged him. Yeah. And led to a brutal, brutal beating by, as we find out, a left-handed man. Yeah. Because the injuries are to the right side of her face. Yeah. Which, yeah. And, of course... Which couldn't have been Tom Robinson. Couldn't have been Tom, because he's only got one workable hand. Yeah. And... And he also doesn't have the demeanor for it. No. Like, at all. And, it, and, and, and that's, Bob Ewell is known to the community yes. as someone who does shady-ass things. Yeah. Um, and so, I... Th- <sighs> and so we get to... Can I mention this, Tom? Yes. Because this is what made me really furious. In, in Tom's um, words, this is what he says happened. And what I find really interesting is Atticus says in... Uh, to introduce Tom to allow him to explain what happened that night. He said, Tom, what happened to you on the evening with Member? Not mm-hmm. what happened, but what happened to you specifically. Yeah. Um, so he says, she reached up and kissed uh, my side of the face. She says she never kissed a grown man before and she might as well kiss a black man. She says what her papa do to her don't count. Yeah. And he pushed her away. Yeah said he didn't want to harm her and heard Mr. Ewell holler through the window. Yeah. So 
that bit about you know what her father does to her don't count and he also tells Atticus um, earlier that because he asks her where the kids are and she says that they all had gone to town to get ice cream and it took her a year to save seven nickels what she should have paid him yeah so a it, nickel each time he helped it so it but it took her a year to save seven nickels so I mean that obviously says to me that there's seven other kids so there's eight of them mm-hmm. um, and so she was the only one home and that this says... It's all purposeful. It's all a plan. Yeah. But I, I don't know if she necessarily... I don't think she thought it would escalate to the point that it did, obviously. No. I, I, don't I don't think she banked on being rejected. Or that she, her father would be home. No. Um, but I wonder if, even if her father hadn't come home, if he had re- if Tom had rejected her, if she would have said something. Oh, absolutely. Right? Just I think the, so. I think the rejection... Is what spurred is the... worse for her. Probably. But I, I wonder because now... Because she has no one. And that was, she has that no was what I was thinking about her interaction with Tom, is like, she has an idea of what this should be, somehow, from somewhere. Right. But she doesn't have the ability... To make it happen. To make it happen, because yeah. she doesn't know how to properly interact with people, yeah. other than her father. Mm-hmm. And that's not proper interaction either. No. Right. But she has no other adults that she interacts with on a regular basis. Mm-mm. Um... And so, and, and Tom, like, readily admits that he knows who she is and whatever because he passes their their house twice a day, going to and from work, and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But He's helped out previously. Yeah. And there's just so many... There's just so many things about it that are infuriating. There, there really are. And the fact that... And the defense really... Or the prosecution really rounds on him because... He does say that he pitied her, or he felt sorry for yeah. her. Yeah, and, and they I think, can't wrap their heads around why he, a black man, could possibly feel sorry for a white woman. Well, and I think that's an interesting thing too, because like Tom is, like he lost his arm in that accident, and but mm-hmm. he's twenty five, he's married, he's got three kids, mm-hmm. and despite his deformity, whatever, right. Seems to be a good man. He's a good man, and he's mm-hmm. found someone to love him, and, and found someone to love, and, and yeah. he's got children, and he's happy, and he's got a job. And, you know, uh, Link Dees, who employs him, employs him all year. It's not just in the summer for picking cotton. It's, he works in the wintertime, too. So there's something about that, that he's obviously a good worker yeah. and, and contributes um, when he's supposed to and those kind of things. And so everything points to Tom Robinson being a very stand-up person. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, he's going to help. Because if he walks past that property twice a day mm-hmm. and sees the state of disrepair that it's in and sees her doing all of the work and her drunk father either absent or whatever else he's doing, yeah. all these snot-nosed kids running around, why wouldn't he feel sorry for her mm-hmm. as a human being? And to see her tending for those flowers? As like her only respite, respite yeah. from this bleak world that she lives in. And, and, and at that moment when... The prosecution is just drilling into him. Dill starts to cry. Yeah, and he needs to leave. And I think Dill realizes what's happening. Mm-hmm. I think Dill. I think I think Dill figures it out before before Scott. Gem and Scout. Okay. I think Dill figures it out before Gem too. Do you think it should be because Dill's a little bit more worldly? I think so. Yeah, he's just got more experience with. But I think Dill figures it out before the other two of them do. He doesn't say a goddamn thing. No, and but he doesn't need to, right? He just he doesn't need to say anything. Um, because his, his his emotional outburst is, is saying enough, I think. Mm-hmm. But it and reminds me of um, 
in the, the film A Time to Kill. It happens in the book too, but it doesn't have quite the impact. Mm. When uh, Samuel L. Jackson's on the stand, when he's as, as Carly Haley, and Matthew Connie is uh, his lawyer, and but he's being interrogated, and, and they're asking, or examined, and, and he says, like, you know, do, do you believe that these boys deserve to die for raping your daughter? And his answer is like, yes, they deserve to die, and I hope they burn in hell. Because he comes busts in the courtroom and, you know, shoots them in the head or whatever. And it's such a wonderful scene. Um, and that's when everybody kind of knows, like, that's when you think, like, oh, shit. Like, he's, he's convinced, like, that's it. There's yeah. no way you can win this case. And I think this, that bit is that moment in this case where all of a sudden it's like, you know what? It's probably not going to happen. Because of the way the prosecution treats Tom. Yeah. And they just needle and needle and needle. Yeah. And that's what happened in that, in the, the time to kill as well. Like, it just kept going and asking and asking and just yeah. poking and poking and poking and poking. And then he just explodes. Mm-hmm. And the, the perception of that is that he can't control himself and whatever. And I yeah, think this yeah. is the same. I think this is the same sort of thing. Which is, brings up some interesting things, too, about, you know, how these types of cases are handled. Because a number of people ask me, Ella, why didn't you scream? Why didn't you struggle mm-hmm. if he was raping you? And mm-hmm. I was just like, okay. Because she... He wasn't, obviously. But I know, also but still that asked those questions, yeah. right? But also the fact that like she had like she was she had like physical contact with another person. Yeah. And if you were that like painfully cripplingly lonely, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I can appreciate that mm-hmm. wanting that physical contact with somebody. Mm-hmm. Even if it's like as you know what I mean? Like yeah. yeah. Even if it's, just, if it's as simple as, like, putting your hand on someone's arm. Mm-hmm. Like, I can absolutely 100% appreciate the need for that. Yeah. And, and the non-violent kind of physical contact, right? Which is so alarming when that's a response that she gets from her father. Mm-hmm. For attempting mm-hmm. any type of contact that isn't violent. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so, so, to answer that question, do I feel sorry for her? Sort of. But not. Oh God, is that what we're still on? Kind of. <laughs> but like, but just in talking about this, like, I don't feel sorry for her because there's so many other ways she could have dealt with the situation. I think you might be right. She chose the wrong lie, mm-hmm. right? And and so because of that, I think we end up with the situation that we have. And so when Jem realizes that Tom Robinson doesn't have a whole left arm, mm-hmm. he's convinced. He's convinced that, that they're gonna win. Yeah. And I think... And he, like, lights yeah. up. Right? And then I There's think, a lot of focus on Jem's reaction yes. to things that happen. In and I, I, I think... And that's because Scout is observing. Yes. Right? Um, and I As think Dill realizes, not long after Jem thinks that the case is won, that it's, it's lost. Won. And he goes out, and then they meet Dolphus Raymond, and they have this little conversation about mm-hmm. perception and whatever. Um... And then, I mean, it's all in the, the same afternoon, and then Calpurnia comes looking for them because they're not supposed to be there, and she can't find them, and somebody points out that they're up at the balcony where they've been all afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, they in deep shit. They're in real big trouble, but they're allowed to stay. Yes. Because if they've seen They've seen it this all. This much. And, and, and they, they come, and they get to see Atticus's closing statement before uh, Calpurnia comes in anyway. Um, and Atticus's closing, st- closing statement is just gorgeous. Like, mm-hmm. he's just... It's so, so, so good. And probably the most significant thing about it is, to begin it, he removes articles of clothing. 
Mm-hmm. Which is absolutely alarming to the children. Yes, it says, it says Judge Taylor nodded, and then mm-hmm. Atticus did something I never saw him do before or since, in public or in private. He unbuttoned his vest, unbuttoned his collar, loosened his tie, and took off his coat. He never loosened a scrap of his clothing until he undressed at bedtime, and to Jem and me, this is the equivalent of him standing before us stark naked. Like, that must have been just... A, and and this, that scene in the movie is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably... this whole The whole courtroom bit in the movie is probably the best part of the movie. It is. Um, and Gregory Peck just sells it, right? And you can't not believe... I read that it was one take. Oh, I can't even imagine that you could do it in one. Like, you'd have to do it in one. And probably the and only it's like one. Nine minutes. It's a long, long scene. Well, in in my it's version, it's like word for word. In my version of the book, um, his closing statement is four and a half pages long. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's a long it's a long statement, and 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 it's just so 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 impactful and so powerful. And so powerful too that you don't see or hear the other side of it, right? No, you don't need to. Doesn't matter. Nope. Um, and he talks a lot about the social norms in Maycomb and, and how mm-hmm. the reason that they're even in this situation right now is because Mayala broke some of the so- that social code. And then once it didn't go her way, she had to do something about it. Yeah. And, then and she how was, that's, you know, an act of desperation. Yes. Um, and he talks about, you know, Thomas Jefferson. Mm-hmm. And he talks. And now we know for sure it's 1935. Yeah. Because it's the only time we actually get a, 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 a finite it. date. Yeah. Um, and he says here, he talks about what the court system means and why the court system is so important. Mm-hmm. And then he's failed by the system that he believes in so wholeheartedly. Mm-hmm. And I think that is just devastating for him. Oh, it's devastating for Jim. Like, he's already... Because, I mean, Atticus is down there and he's stripped down and he's, you know, he's just in his shirt. This is just me. Yeah. Yeah. And... and I've given all that I could. I've done the best that I can. And I've everybody in that in goddamn danger. courtroom knows yeah. that Tom Robinson is innocent. Yeah. Everybody knows it. Yeah. And Atticus knows it. And I think when he's done... Um, because he says here, I'm no idealist to believe firmly in the integrity of our courts and in the jury system. That is no ideal to me. It is a living, working reality. Gentlemen, a court is no better than each man of you sitting before me on this jury. A court is only as sound as its jury, and a jury is only as sound as the men who make it up. I am confident that you gentlemen will review without passion the evidence that you have heard, come to a decision, and restore this defendant to his family. In the name of God, do your duty. Mm-hmm. And then... Whispers. He whispers, in the name of God, believe him. Mm-hmm. And I think at that point, Atticus knows it's gone. that he's not going to win. Yep. But he did everything he could anyway. And then Calpurnia comes in and looking for the kids, and then they're there, and um, they're, they're allowed to stay for the verdict. And it takes a long-ass time. It does. Which is compelling like, in itself, that in 1935, a jury of white men, yeah. um, taking the word of a, a white woman and her father against the word of a black man, took time to deliberate and actually listen and consider the evidence... Mm-hmm. that Atticus presented. And it's and like five hours, isn't it? It's a long, long time. It's a long time. And everyone's restless and... But no one leaves. They left. They went home. Briefly. Because... To eat and stuff. And mm-hmm. then they come back. And they were gone for an hour. Um, and... Reverend's still there. Reverend's still... Everybody's still there. Mm-hmm. It's like... Calpurnia comes in at... I don't know what time Calpurnia comes in at... I thought it was four. Around four-ish, and then later on it's getting on towards like, eight. Yeah. So, like, it's been a long, long, long deliberation. Mm-hmm. Um, and then everybody 
when when the clock bonged 11 times i was past feeling Mm. um and then she just starts counting or whatever of just anything to kind of keep herself awake yep um and then the jury comes back in and we get the verdict. We get the verdict, mm-hmm. and 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 she scouts a little mad at Jem because Jem was con- convinced it was going to be real quick, but the fact that it took as much time as it did, is like it's, it's this little bit of hope, yeah. right? It's yeah. this little bit of hope that it's going to go the way you want it to go. Yeah. Um, and then scouts says something so interesting here at the end of of chapter, uh, twenty one, just before the verdict is delivered. She says, "I must have been reasonably awake, or I would not have received the impression that was creeping into me. It was not unlike the one I had last winter, and I shivered though the night was hot, and like that's." Um, that's the... It's the beginning of the fear. The beginning of the fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and so she has this feeling and she all of a sudden just kind of realizes, like, something terrible is going to happen. Yeah. Um, and then every time the jury members say guilty, Jem, like, violently jerks. Yeah. And has this visceral reaction to As it. if he's being stabbed, it says. Yeah, and, and, and I think Scout in that moment, both as the adult narrator and as the child, looks at her brother very differently. Mm-hmm. And realizes that, like, all of his... How effective Whatever, how how much this has impacted the things that mm-hmm. that he does. Um, and Atticus is very calm. Yeah. Yeah, he... Yeah. And what else can he... Packs up his thing. Yeah. Whispers to Tom. Yeah. Takes off his coat. Goes to leave. And, and in an incredibly powerful moment. Yeah. Everyone in the balcony stands. And Reverend Sykes asks... Scout, calling her Jean Louise. Which is very significant, powerful, yeah. To, to stand because her father's past. Yeah. And, and that, oh my god, in the movie, yeah. Megan, I cried. Yep. I cried. I'm like almost crying right now I just know. thinking about it. So yeah, it's. um. And he doesn't yeah. look. He doesn't look up. Nope. He just keeps going. Yep. Oh, it's beautiful. It is. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a very powerful image mm-hmm. because you go through this and like the fact, just the simple fact that in the thirties, an all white jury would have taken that long to deliberate mm-hmm. on a case of a black man accused of beating and raping a white woman is like, it's fascinating to me. And so you get this like sense of hope that like, maybe just maybe it might work out. And then it's just like, everything is just shattered. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I mean, we, then when you get into part three, which we'll, we'll get to next week, um, you get, the look at sort of why Atticus is the way that he is. Yes. And why he's raised his children the way that he's raised his children. And then we get this beautiful, like, circle back towards Boo Boo Radley, which I think is the most incredible cap-off to this story. Mm -hmm. Because, like, he's forgotten, essentially, after the first part. Oh, They don't talk about Boo Radley at all, because this trial is just all-encompassing. And then, all of a sudden, we're back to Boo Radley, and it's just the most beautiful, um, kind of poetic... Closing, yeah. Closing. Um, so I don't know. I don't have any more because I can't really talk about it anymore. Probably I know, you're quite emotional. <laughs> I'm, I'm fine with that. Let's let's finish up part three, chapter 22 on next week. Yeah, that'll be good. And then, uh, I don't know, if you have any thoughts, if you agree with us or disagree, let us know. Send if us an email. The book. If you read the book. <laughs> don't just watch the movie. This no, is not the kind where you can just watch the movie. Um, no, because you'll hate it. And then I'll make fun of you. And the um, book's like nine bucks. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, yeah. If you're if you're following along with us, let us know. Let us know what you think about what we're saying. If you agree or disagree or whatever, I think it'd be fun. Um, if you have sympathy for Mayella. Yeah. Let us know, Tasha Allen. I hope you're listening to this because I would love to know what you think. Oh, 
She could do her own damn podcast. She could. We should, we should get her to come ah, and talk books with us. That'd be so fun. That'd be so good. Um, so yeah, we'll be back next week with our wrap-up of To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm.